Hey everyone, Rima here. I just wanted to level set for a bit. In case you didn't know, this podcast actually started a few years ago from the efforts of the second class of Foundry Fellows with the likes of Emery Roan, Joe Jerome, Pinal Shaw, and others. Once their fellowship term ended, the show sadly fell off the map. But in March of this year, 2022, by the way, for anyone tuning into a digital time capsule, we restarted the show. It's crazy to think that we're now 21 episodes deep into this season of the tech policy grind. We're constantly brainstorming ways we can improve and innovate the show. So we're starting a new segment where my dear friend and Foundry fellow Lama Muhammad and I are going to cover some headlines in the world of tech policy. Today, we chat about new programs and orders out of the White House, the dynamics at the FTC, and then we'll turn it over to Foundry Fellow Dylan Bramble for the bulk of the episode to talk Web3 with Gabrielle Hibbert and Hilary Brill of the Decentralized Future Council. Hey, Lama, you ready to talk news? Yes, I am super excited to be talking about the news for this episode this week. Um, the goal of this segment is to kind of just have a conversation about some of the top headline segments that are happening in tech policy this week and just give us our opinions. Full disclaimer that this has nothing to do to reflect the universities, institutions, and organizations that we work with. This is simply just some oversight about what's going on and what we think about it. You're going to make a great lawyer, Lama. Look at that disclaimer. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Well, let's dig into it. Um, There's some exciting news coming out of the White House uh, these past couple of weeks. You want to start with Energy Star? Yes. So just yesterday... Representatives from Congress met at the White House to discuss the future of cybersecurity labeling, which is something that the Cyber Civilian Commission had recently started um, before their departure. The program is supposed to launch next spring, and they're sort of using the EPA's and the Department of Energy's STAR program as a model, and they will sort of reward companies for investing in cybersecurity while also supporting consumers to find safer products. Um, Personally, I think this is a great step forward. The use of cybersecurity labeling and cybersecurity metrics is a really good form to keep a standard for companies to follow because cybersecurity, as you know, is super broad, very confusing, very complex, and it's difficult to sort of follow a standard certification for that. And I think this is a step in the right direction to do that. Yeah, and it's interesting that this seems really in line with CISA's approach to mm-hmm. cybersecurity management and focusing on practical implementation, especially through public-private partnerships. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting to see the White House starting to follow that approach. Yeah, it's exciting. And the nice thing about this is that they're getting input from not just Congress people, but think tanks and nonprofits, 
who are basically working together to help develop this. And so I am manifesting good things, especially as it's Cybersecurity Awareness Month. <laughs> Other White House news. That new AI Bill of Rights, huh? <laughs> yes, this is something that AI ethics advocates have been hoping for a really long time. And it's very exciting. Um, do you want to walk us through a little bit of what's of what's been drafted in the blueprint? Yeah, I think this is just really exciting because it's the first time that we're seeing addresses issues of algorithmic bias, civil rights in the AI sphere, um, apart from ADPA, which has a really interesting section on that. Um, mm-hmm. As we know, ADPA is dead in the water at the moment uh waiting for for imminent resuscitation if you're optimistic uh so this is exciting and has been in the works for some time um coming out of a vision from about a year ago um introduced by the office of science and technology policy but now we're seeing it in flesh, and it's just a matter of whether it'll be implemented on on any real level. Yeah, I completely agree. I think this is a big win for civil rights as well. Um, I don't think it's unknown that AI, unfortunately, does still carry a lot of harm in regards to creating bias and even physical harm to communities of color and other marginalized groups. And so this is this blueprint is a step in the right direction for starting the protection of those particular communities. Um, what we need to do forward next is to sign this into law and make sure that every policy moving forward in relation to technology is grounded in civil rights because, as we know, technology is not neutral. It does have social and political costs. So moving on to another big player in this tech policy sphere, our good old favorite regulatory agency, the FTC, FTC. some exciting news this week as well. Yes. So just actually just a couple of days ago, FTC Commissioner Noah Phillips, Phillips ended his tenure and returned to his law firm um Kravith Swain and more I'm pretty sure I butchered one of those names (laughs) (laughs) um so as we know um former FTC commissioner is a Republican which leaves Lena Khan the agency's chair with a 3-1 Democratic majority um but this also means that there is an open GOP seat to fill and so it's sort of interesting because there's a greater uncertainty of who Biden will appoint in regards to working with Senate Republicans to identify the right person. It's very interesting because Commissioner Phillips was a very pro-business figure. And as we know, the FTC has sort of taken a more antitrust and crackdown of big companies. So it'll be interesting how those two will debate. Um, And it'll also be interesting to see how this may change in priority in regards that we're coming towards an election season, um, how it might reflect what's going on over at the FCC. Gigi San is still not 
you know, elected right now. There's a lot of contention over there. And so it's clear that the part, our two parties have differing priorities and, ha- and it's beginning to impact what both commissions can do. But it's an interesting time. Yeah, these agency dynamics are fascinating. And I think there's been a lot of discussion in the field about what's going on at the FTC, not just in and of itself, but between commissioners, between uh, attorneys and other staff at the commission, their sort of sentiment about the current prioritizations um, being spearheaded by uh, Chair Khan. So it's been interesting to see. And something that I want to do is start doing like a spicy tweet of the week. Because privacy Twitter <laughs> and tech policy Twitter just feel like absolutely explodes whenever uh, one of these spicy tweets especially from uh, from the FTC comes comes into the foray. Uh, so everyone's talking about this tweet from Commissioner Wilson. Hmm. I quote, said, yes, I'm declining lots of invites to speak. There are not enough hours in the day to, one, address the barrage of misguided policy ideas and procedural hijinks, Two, push for languishing good cases that should be brought, should is bolded, may I add. And three, identify slash air new ways at FTC is abusing its power. There are a lot of words and feelings here. Procedural hijinks is just my new favorite legal phrase of all time, my I know procedural hijinks. It like it's like a combination of legal language, but also like <laughs> Scooby Doo. Like I feel like hijinks is a word you hear in Scooby Doo. <laughs> Let's just say this is spicy and leave it at that. Hillary and Gabrielle, welcome, and thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thank you for having me. So this conversation is all about Web3, what it is, and why early career law and policy professionals should get into it. So I think the first question is defining it, right? We, If you're anywhere in tech law and policy news, you hear about Web3 and blockchain and crypto and how it will revolutionize the future. But I think for a lot of us, It's like, okay, that's really cool, but like, what does it mean? What does that look like? So the first question is, what is the decentralized web or Web3? Is it Bitcoin? Is it blockchain? Is it cryptocurrency? How would you define it? Yeah, definitely. I can go ahead and take this. So I like to tell people that there are roughly three iterations of the web or the internet as we know it. So the first iteration or Web1, we can define as kind of 
the, the read or write only web. This is kind of the web that most people grew up with, uh, including my generation. Uh, this is static web pages. There's not a ton of social media happening. Uh, this is around the 90s, early 2000s kind of era. We get to Web 2 after the dot-com crash around 1999, 2001-ish. And with that, we see a huge boom going from static web pages to having browser windows. We also have a lot of social media and a lot of software as sales uh, coming up within this uh, iteration. And we are now kind of in this transitionary period where Web 3 is being talked about, right? Uh, but to define it very succinctly, it's the web of peer-to-peer -peer technologies. So instead of having a centralized uh, kind of provider, there are various blockchains that comprise of the decentralized web. And with that, individuals have greater uh, autonomy and sovereignty to move and go uh, where their data wants to go. Uh, in terms of it relating to Bitcoin and blockchain, I would say you can kind of think of Web3 as the all-encompassing term, uh, but Bitcoin is separate. It pertains to the first cryptocurrency uh, that was founded in 2007, 2008, and the technology which underlies both blockchain, uh, sorry, both Web3 and Bitcoin, which is blockchain. Uh, and I can get into the more technical details uh, with that a little bit later, but that's, that's how we can kind of break it down. Sure. Yeah, Hillary, what do you have to add to that definition? Well, Gabrielle uh, is always someone that I enjoy having any of these conversations with because uh, not only is she an expert in what she does um, and a, a fantastic speaker on these issues, but I feel sometimes she's my yin to my yang. She is a true computer science expert. So you get an angle from someone who actually can go uh, into a, a detailed description of the science that is the, behind what is Web3. And I come from the lens of a technology policy um, expert, for lack of a better term, and someone who has worked on new technologies, uh, the balance of innovation and regulation for um, uh, quite, since since uh, internet technology policy uh, became something we started regulating. So I look at Web3 and I don't always see ones and zeros the same way, not that that's what you see, Gabrielle, but I, I see it as, um, first of all, somewhat of a buzz term, but we do need a term to describe um, a movement or an evolution. Uh, some people might say a revolution, uh, whatever way you want to describe it, but Web3 is a catchphrase in my personal opinion, that really defines this evolution of technologies and how we use it on the internet. So uh, Gabrielle said it very well. Someone put it in a tweet. Someone said web one was read, web two was read write, web three, someone said read write own. Um, this concept of uh, ownership is uh, um, a big force in web three technologies. Web three technologies, as Gabrielle said, uh, is is technologies that are generally based on the blockchain and how we use them about the internet. So this concept of owning is the new part of uh, Web3. But you also mentioned um, before the, this um, decentralized versus centralized. And I know we'll get into why is Web3 good? You know, why is Web3 potentially bad um, without normative judgments? 
there is a true concept of centralized and decentralized. And uh, I, I don't know if that's a different question, Dylan, but I will say here that the idea of decentralization seems revolutionary again, but it really is, harkens back to the beginning of the web and the creation of the web. And a lot of the web is based on decentralization. We have just moved towards centralizing a lot of our information and a lot of our content. And the discussions that we hear today on all of the key tech policy issues, whether it's antitrust, um, whether it's social media and content moderation, a lot of that has to deal with centralization. So people are looking at decentralization and Web3 as uh, one of those movements to address some of these problems. So when people say Web3, it, it's not just it's not just read, write, own. Um, that's a good basis, but there's so much more involved in it. Thank you so much for that. And I think that's an excellent segue into the next question. I think you guys highlighted a really interesting trajectory from Web 1 to Web 3. And it almost sounds like Web 1 was really decentralized just by the nature of it being this burgeoning technology. And in Web 2, we kind of, I don't not we, all these conglomerates were created and they enacted all this control over content and who can use what, where. And so maybe Web 3 can be seen as a hearkening back to the wild, wild west web of web of, of web one. Um, but I think the difference between web two and web three is something that people are really interested in. I think that is the best way that people can visualize this. We're mostly in web two today. So what is the difference between web two and web three? How will people's experience change between these iterations? What becomes better? What becomes worse? Or just yeah, I, I feel like this is a really good question, first of all, because I believe that, you know, I've, I've been in the space for quite some time now, and I've seen the different iterations of a user's experience uh, across the years. And a couple of things that I think will change dramatically from the user's perspective is the entire concept of having your digital identity goes from having all of your information uh, on these various websites that you can't really take with you uh, to potentially having that data move with you and you have the autonomy to say, okay, this company can have uh, access to my personal information. This company can't, et cetera, et cetera. And there are some challenges to that, technologically speaking. Uh, for one, I still do believe, and this is my personal opinion, that it is still a developer's playground. Uh, we haven't gotten to the point yet where uh, the layman can just onboard onto Web3 without a little bit of assistance. So on the usability front, there needs to be a lot more progress with that. We need more uh, you know, user researchers and designers and product developers to join the Web3 uh, movement as well as uh, more education on how this, how people can interact with Web3 technologies, because there are a vast array of products out there that people can engage with, so. Uh, I enjoyed this question because uh, you're asking, you know, how is it, how is Web3 different from Web2? You know, what makes it 1.0 more, right? How are you moving forward? and. I, I think that always begs the question of how is it not different first? Like, how is it the same? And I, I find the entire evolution of the internet following this, uh, a very similar arc. I, 
I enjoy the fact that we talk about Web3 and we need to explain concepts like Bitcoin is not blockchain, right? Like we have to explain concepts of what is blockchain. We have to explain what is Web3 uh, in order to understand Web2. Whereas back in 1995, and I kid you not, because I had a quote, um, not a quote, uh, a video for my class, um, Dylan, you'll appreciate this. And it had Katie Couric talking to Al Roker about this crazy new thing called email. Like I'm not talking about the internet, right? Like just, just the concept of like email. And then they, no joke, went to an expert and said, could you explain the internet to us? Right? <laughs> right? Like it's worth a laugh because that's kind of what we're doing right now. And I love the fact that 20 years from now, this conversation will be quaint because we'll look back and say, could you explain what blockchain is? Could you explain what Web3 is? And who knows, maybe we'll be on Web27 or maybe we won't even have the internet. We, I don't know exactly what we're going to have, but anything new uh, comes across as something potentially um, uh, confusing, difficult. You said it, Gabrielle, it's a developer's playground. I find it similar to the concept of, I still could not, now Gabrielle could do this, but I still could not put up a website with code by myself. Okay, now Gabrielle's laughing. She's like, I, I do that in my sleep. Like she can do that, but I can go to Wix right now. I can go to Square right now. I can go to Weebly right now. There are so many services that enable someone like me to put up a website. And I've done it now probably a dozen times. So I envision the pain points that we have with adopting certain positive uses of Web3 technologies to, to eventually go through those iterations that people can use them in the promise and hope that they have um, to be used. So I was just saying, how is it the same? I think it's the same in the sense that it's a new technology um, that people are trying to figure out, just like Web2. I think it's the same that the same problems we had with Web2 are the same problems we have with Web3, if not exacerbated or more confusing because we're trying to figure out and explain to policymakers what is Web3 or or or, or your listeners. Um, in fact, uh, I joined the Decentralized Future Council because I, I think it's so important to explain basic concepts to people like me who are not computer scientists, but more importantly, to people who are policymakers and have to make decisions on what kind of laws we're going to use to regulate uh, the innovation that is behind Web3 inappropriately regulated because we know now lessons that we learned about not regulating um, Web 2.0 and the issues that we're dealing with right now, the fallout. But I think you explained, to answer your question, how are they different? Um, clearly, uh, some of it isn't that different, and um, the, uh, but there are different ways of doing some of the same things, things that the promise of Web3 is the promise of what I was saying before about owning your information, the promise of... Um, uh, taking away some of the centralization of information, um, the promise of transparency, pro higher protection of privacy. Those are things that Web3 has that currently isn't uh, the highest value right now in Web 2.0. I think that those are both excellent points. And I think the two things that really stood out to me were the need to get people educated and up to speed and how this parallels to the creation of the internet. I think part of all this interest about this subject matter is that all these people were like, well, last time I missed the boat. Last time I was like, I have a beeper. I don't need to learn how to use email or whatever people were saying. I think I was like, it, I was a fetus at that time. So <laughs> I don't remember it personally, but 
people saw them missing the boat and saw how all this opportunity didn't go to them because they weren't those first adopters. So I think that there's this rush of excitement that there's like this new thing. I can be a first adopter this time if I learn it. And so I would like to hear a little more about the Decentralized Future Council and what role you feel like they play. You spoke a little bit about it in educating policy, but like what are the steps that we need to do other than obviously podcast episodes like this to get people up to speed and educated about these so that we can be prepared to meet these technologies head on and not kind of play catch up like we're still doing with the internet. It, it, uh, it's interesting, Dylan, because you said there's this rush of excitement because some people want to be part of um, a new technology. And clearly that happened with uh, cryptocurrencies. And again, Web3 is not Bitcoin. It is beyond crypto, which is actually the basis of um, so much of the Decentralized Future Council, which is it is not uh, an organization that is dedicated to explaining all the inner workings and issues with cryptocurrency. It is about the technologies behind Web3. Uh, and and how it can be, um, how it is being used, um, how it can be used, how uh, as um, communities and policymakers, we can support the innovation that's behind it with an understanding of the concerns and the problems that truly do exist and uh, can be more troubling. So beyond a podcast, what can we do? Well, Gabrielle said, let's let tell, show people, let's make it tangible. Uh, this conversation is so intangible. The minute I say Web3 to people like outside of our listeners or they just look at me like, what? I didn't know we had a Web1 or 2. Um, I just taught Web3 in my class and they looked at me like, before this class, I had no idea there was a Web1 and 2. And that is a very small community of people that took a tech policy class and want to know about tech policy class at a law school. So the fact that they haven't heard of it. So there is so much groundwork that needs to be done particularly with regulators and policymakers um, and everyone else. But it's funny you said the excitement. There's also this, um, someone someone in my class said it, so I don't want to take credit for it, this kind of get off my lawn concept of, I don't need this newfangled Web3 thing when my page, you know, my, my paper still works, right? Like they're saying my internet still works. There is no market for this. Why do we need this? This is ridiculous. So that is the same mentality that happened Again, parallel to the early stage of the internet, when I told my friends and family I bought a ticket online, they thought I was insane and that I would never get on an airplane, right? Like there was no way I was going to get that ticket. Like I just threw my money into some strange universe again of ones and zeros. And it's still, um, uh, and it was rife with some problems. I mean, the internet back in the early days had a Wild West feel, like you said, and the e-commerce had a lot of Wild West feel. And, and that is a lot of what we can talk later about, but that's going on right now too. There's this e-commerce of um, NFTs, which I'm sure we can talk about, that is you know, creating a lot of um, skepticism and concern with Web3, um, but, but that is not very different than early days of the internet and, and all of the um, ringing out, so to speak, that had to come to say, okay, these are trusted sites. Um, which, by the way, led to the centralization that we had in Web2. So it's something to keep in mind. We talk about decentralization as a value, but there is a value in centralization too. So there is this push and pull and tension between it. And I also wanted to say that a lot of the technologies that we're talking about, blockchain, this idea of um, a decentralized web, aren't necessarily new topics. Uh, 
the first kind of iterations of blockchain were developed around the 70s. So even before <laughs> we get the, uh, the web one that most people grew up with, uh, technology iterates and we're getting to the point at which we are finally using them in an operational sense. So it's, it's kind of funny from a technological perspective to hear other perspectives from people saying uh, that, you know, this is technology that we don't need, when in reality, these technology stacks have been developed <laughs> for quite some time, and these aren't necessarily new concepts. We'll be right back. For Cybersecurity Awareness Month, the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, as well as the Women in Cybersecurity Privacy Law and Policy Affiliate, are excited to present CyberCon, the Foundry's first ever virtual cybersecurity convention. CyberCon will take place on Friday, October 28th, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern and run until 2.30 Eastern. We have a fantastic agenda planned, including a fireside chat with Josephine Wolf, who's an associate professor of cybersecurity policy at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, on her latest book, Cyber Insurance Policy, Rethinking Risk in an Age of Ransomware, Computer Fraud, Data Breaches, and Cyber Attacks. You can register for CyberCon now on the Foundry's Eventbrite page, or just check out the show notes for the link. There's two buzzwords that I feel like float around a lot, and that's Web3 versus Metaverse. And I think even I, I'm struggling with the difference. I, I want to shout out that the Foundry has done some Web Metaverse webinars, and we're doing our hackathon this year on the Web Metaverse. And in each session of that, we had to start with what is the Metaverse? And we got a different answer for each, from each professional, because a lot of these concepts seem kind of nebulous. So how would you distinguish Metaverse from Web3? Are they the same? Is one a part of the other? Are they unrelated? Yeah, I think that with anything technology related, they can be related to one another, but not be the same. And this is how I would position Web3 in the metaverse. Uh, for the, for I would say Web3 specifically, you're dealing with that tech stack with blockchain underlying it and then building other uh, products from there. The metaverse is something that I would put more into the category of augmented reality, um, the use of maybe even AI within that, and creating worlds and environments for particular use cases, whether that be uh, in the science side, so like working on um, possibly like students, like, uh, you know, med students trying to, to work on uh, operating on a person to the more gaming side of the metaverse where you have, uh, you know, video games like Second Life, which is also a very old video game that uses the metaverse to uh, newer uh, games. So you can have both. Uh, and there are a lot of uh web three based metaverses that do exist, but they are not one and the same. It's kind of like relating Bitcoin to blockchain. That's a great answer. That makes a lot of sense. 
So to pivot a little bit, I think part of this series and the foundry is focused on young, early career tech law and policy professionals. And I think as one of them, I graduated law school a year ago. It is an exciting and scary time to be entering the tech law space. So much is happening. Um, so the, for those listening and for those who are maybe distantly interested in Web3, kind of want to get their feet wet, know what they're doing, what should they be looking forward with the emergence of these new technologies? And how can they prepare themselves to enter the profession as soon-to-be experts on Web3 or even people who Web3 is a part of their practice or their work? And to kind of go off of that, I think one thing that I would love to hit home, especially getting into such a new space technology-wise, is do not be afraid to start from uh, layer zero, as we say in the engineering world, and actually learn, okay, what is what is a blockchain? Not, you know, beyond the, I would say, generalized definition that we give in the podcast and other kind of uh, more public-facing events, but the technical definition of it. Uh, build that knowledge base uh, before going into the more advanced topics, because uh, with that knowledge, you can take that and uh, and if you use that to the best of your abilities when engaging with policy and legislation. Uh, and don't be afraid to talk to developers and engineers. We want to talk to you all, <laughs> and we can provide insights that you know might make why certain things work. Uh, more, more lucid, more, more, uh, you know, <laughs> more interesting. So as a lawyer, I think another thing I deal with a lot is the skepticism. And I'm sure Hillary, as a policy person, you deal with a lot of skepticism. Um, and I think a lot of it is warranted. I think part of our jobs as lawyers and policy people and technologists too, is to be skeptical. What can go wrong? How, what are the bad use cases? How can this be abused? And I think there is such a loud voice of skepticism surrounding web three in these circles what is that about is the skepticism warranted what are the things that are making people feel so skeptical about this technology yeah i mean i can take that from a privacy perspective so in terms of where a lot of the skepticism within my own circles comes from is this idea that the data is transparent across blockchains. And that begs a, you know, a really interesting privacy question, right? Okay, so if your data is public, uh, in a sense, what does that mean for privacy across the Web3 ecosystem? And there are ways to work with that in a way that uh, kind of protects civil liberties while also engaging with the technology side. But there are a couple of questions that are uh, integral to the Web3 space that bring about a lot of that skepticism. Um, in addition to that, I also think it's partially on the side of crypto. I think that's the part of the space that gets a lot of the uh, skepticism, uh, partially because of its, uh, I would say, relative newness started in 2008. Uh, and the fact that it is an entirely different iteration of a financial system. But beyond those two things, I think kind of going back to what 
Hillary was saying, uh, this is kind of like uh, being a part of a new group of uh, people on the cutting edge. Uh, you may not want to let go of your painter or beeper, you know, might want to stay with what you have and what you're familiar with. Right, that makes sense. Um, so I think how they have this skepticism, and I think for different reasons, you just highlighted some, and Hillary, in a second, you can get to some other skepticisms that Web3 people have. Um, but I, I guess what can technologists do, Gabrielle, because I think you're more on the technology side, to address some of these skepticism? Is it dealing with the skepticism in the design of the technologies before it gets to consumers so that they can feel more comfortable? Is it education for consumers so they know and they can be more comfortable with the exchange of like, these are the risks versus benefits of the technology? Yeah, I think it definitely comes down to showing people how to use these particular products that do exist in the ecosystem. just like how I, you know, was sat down in my primary school and learned how to type <laughs> on a keyboard and learned how to use email and PowerPoint and things like that. Uh, we need to, to do the same things with policymakers and the public because uh, a lot of people who are not native to the Web3 ecosystem might not know the things you need to keep in the back of your mind as you're interacting with the ecosystem. So I would put a lot of uh, my time and energy on, you know, doing these whiteboard sessions, showing people this is what this new Web3 (laughs) space looks like, and this is how you engage with it, uh, outside of just kind of discussing and talking about it. And Hillary, yeah. What, tell us about the skepticism you're seeing in the policy space. Is it warranted? Well, I I don't want to put a judgment on whether it's warranted or unwarranted, but I do think that uh, basic psychology, there's something new and it's confusing to everyone except Gabrielle. (laughs) I'm joking, Gabrielle. But it's confusing to most people that are not um, developing uh, and working on um, these issues. So when faced with confusion, uh, the majority of people will say the following, either I don't want to hear about it, I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist, and that happens as one response. I call that like the apathetic response or or flat out dismissive. Like, that's stupid. Why would you do that? No one wants that. That's just crazy, right? Um, uh, and then the third, which is anger, right? Like some people are antagonistically against Web3. Like they'll say, um, uh, I hate that. That's, that's a horrible thing. It's going to, you know, like ruin the world. Um, and then you get the other extreme on the other side, because you're talking about skepticism. There is this Pollyanna, um, uh, almost religious ideological um, joy and optimism in the fact that Web3 is going to literally change and make the world a utopia that we don't have it. And it, you know, if we only went to all things decentralized, everyone would get along and the world would be an amazing place, which again is just another extreme. And um, I'm open and honest about where I fall. I like to say I'm a cautious optimist. Um, I, I, I am not afraid of technology. I think technology can do wonderful things, but I'm extraordinarily cautious and I want to understand the technology first and foremost. Like Gabrielle was saying, talk to people that understand it and to think about what we can do and try to, to the best of our abilities, um, flag potential landmines and work our ways around them. But we don't know what they are until they happen. I mean, nobody's going to know what they are until they happen. But is it actually is it warranted? Um, well, 
there have been a lot of um, fraudulent uses of Web3. I mean, this is no joke. Uh, it is another way to do money laundering. Um, it is it is being used in um, dark corners. Um, it is, uh, on one hand, it is being used positively to help um, uh, refugees or or people in Ukraine right now. On the other hand, is it being used to go around economic sanctions? Right, like it it is a tool that can be used for good and a tool that could um, potentially be used in ways that um, do cause reason uh, to be skepticism to be skeptical. Um, in fact, there is. There's such a movement of skepticism. So when you go online and try to learn about Web3, I think you're inundated. Potentially, I'd like to see this. This would be an interesting study of like how many negative versus positive articles are, are out there. But there's this one celebrated woman, and I'm happy to mention her. Her name is Molly White. And no, um, she has a website that Web3 is just going great. It's like literally the most sarcastic title because then you go to it and it is um, almost like a ledger pun intended, of all these articles that have been going on that are saying, here's a scandal, here's a scandal, here's another scandal. Even Kim Kardashian, and yes, I'm throwing that into our conversation, she was just all over the news for um, a potential cryptocurrency scandal. Um, now hers had to do with the SEC and whether or not she was promoting um, a cryptocurrency and she was breaking different SEC rules, not really about the technology behind it. But there are so many crypto scandals that get mixed in too much with um, the, the promise of blockchain, which is different. And there's so, so much going on with the crypto founders being investigated. Um, there also is pure silliness um, going around with even names of like bored apes. So people say, what is this? And why are people spending literally hundreds of like thousands of dollars for this little avatar? And so you'll get someone saying, well, that's going to that's a flash in the pan. That's a pet rock like that's going to be over. Um, but frankly, I just saw a pet rock at CBS the other day. So, like, I'm not sure it's going to be over for that soon. Um, but also, uh, we just because it's it, you may not value it doesn't mean I, I I I can't tell people why they value all sorts of things or why certain things are more valuable than an antique store. So. Because people have different judgments about what they want in their life and what they don't, they they put that out there and they create this kind of skepticism. But there are fraudulent um, um, trades with we were you know kind of mentioning it NFTs, which um, in and of itself is creating a lot of skepticism. People think that that is um, uh, um, just rife with problems. So oh, and the fact that the market busted. I mean, Bitcoin went from super, super high amount to um, a, a bust. And I think back to um, the dot com, right? The bubble burst in 2000. But look where we are with the internet. Look, it's, and look at your valuation if you had kept, you know, some of these companies from 2000. So I, I can't say all that skepticism is warranted, but I, I think it's strange if it wasn't there, frankly. I think it would be strange if it wasn't there. Right. I think I really like cautious optimism as the approach because I think you. you hit the nail on the head, right? Web3 is a tool. The internet is a tool. Tools are neutral. It's how they're used. If I want, I could write a 10,000 page book on all the horrible uses of the internet, but then people also fundraise for charity on the internet. They build communities on the internet. They do beautiful things. So I think that it's important that people approach this with a balanced 
perspective. Like there will be bad. And then the question is, how do we regulate to avoid the bad? How do we design these technologies to avoid the bad? How do we teach about these things to avoid the bad? But they'll also be good. And we want to make sure when we're doing all those things, we're not doing them in a way that makes the good impossible. And so to dovetail off of that, I think to get a little bit more specific to what are some of these goods and bads? What are the pros and the cons? What are things we've talked about privacy and identity? Um, we, I think cybersecurity has been mentioned a little bit, people using it to enact fraud. But like, what are some of the positives and issues that you've seen coming up in Web3 thus far? Yeah, so I mean, one of the best things that is coming out of Web3 is the fact that you can transact data from peer to peer. I think just that alone is something that is so close to how we operate in real life that it's it's something that we just haven't had yet on the internet, right? So that alone is probably my biggest pro for the use of Web3. And I might state a little bit more cons just because I <laughs> work in the cybersecurity space. So I see this come across my desk all the time. Uh, but a lot of the blockchains that are being built, uh, they're being built with a lot of newer programming languages. And with that comes uh, unanticipated events that may happen or occur. So it, it's not as battle tested as other programming languages that have been around for a lot longer. Um, but with that, that comes uh, a lot of experimentation that can occur on the technolo technology side, right? Uh, but uh, in all, I do think that Web3 will be the iteration of the internet that allows people to broker their data how they want. And that in and of itself is incredible. We haven't really seen or, or gotten to that part of history yet. So, yeah. I think that the the promise of Web three uh, definitely um, falls into the pro the pro category of uh, of, of Web three clearly, and I I I'm somewhat ashamed to say this. But I think this is one of the cons of Web3. If you are a person who is interested in technology and not afraid, like myself, the entry point to using some Web3 technology or most Web3 technologies is, is high. It is not a part of my daily life. I am not um, presented with it and I am not using it that I know of. Now, Gabrielle might say I'm wrong and I don't realize that I'm using it when I'm doing other things. I, I can say I know that all day long, I'm bombarded with, for example, algorithms, right? Like I know that's happening constantly. Um, but Web3 technology and blockchain, I'm not sure I'm bombarded with it every day, but I could be and I'm not aware of it. Um, so I think one of the cons, frankly, of Web3 is adoption by like the general public and making it more commonplace. And, and Gabrielle hit it spot on. A lot of that comes from demos and how does this work and, and, and making it more mainstream um, and, and, and easier for people to accept. But do you know how long it took us to get so many people to use the internet? I mean, it basically took us a pandemic to have like telehealth be a real thing, right? So I, I, I don't know 
what that trajectory looks like for adoption with Web3, but I frankly think that's one of the hard things about Web3. But to me, when I think of Web3 and the pros, I think of its promise and some of the things that I have heard it being used for, but I have not personally participated in. So uh, I think this concept of you own your own information and it is decentralized and I can possibly use that um, as like a personal identity. If I want to go into different metaverses, I have my own identity um, in my own um, hands and it's not centralized and in the hands of Frankly, in the hands of Meta, if it's if I'm in Horizon, it's in my own hands, and it's portable, and I can take it with me, and it's not. Um, it's supposed to be encrypted and uh, something that's there. I think that is a pro. One pro is in a, a, a blockchain for good, basically. Um, this concept of the fact that some information can be out there and you can't get rid of it can be a good thing. It can be a difficult thing, but to enable um, information to not be taken down from some kind of centralized server can be a positive use of uh, blockchain. We can use it for access to information and we can use it to ensure that information stays there. Um, there is an uh, um, iconic figure in access to information. His name is Brewster Kale, started the Internet Archive. Most people have heard of the Wayback Machine. He had this vision ages ago uh, about archiving the internet and the information that's out there and making sure that people can't take things off the internet and say it never happened, gaslight people. So what I think is most interesting um, about uh, Brewster is that actually in 2015, he was having these Web3, um, uh, I call them like Burning Man, right? Like they were out in the woods, these Web3 um, conferences to talk about the future of Web3 before we were all talking about it and it's still going on. Um, but the idea is to make sure that you can get access to information and, and information is controlled by you and not by some other that could use that information against you or omit that information. Um, there are tangible good uses of blockchain. I mentioned before getting money to refugees. Um, the, the United Nations has a world's food program that they have invested quite a bit to um, uh, track supply chain and where food um, is going. You can track all sorts of um, efficiencies, whether it's climate control, whether it's agriculture, in a way that you couldn't um, as easily with uh, Web2 technologies. And um, I also love the, the innovation. Um, whether you think it's silly or not, I love this sort of disruptive concept. We haven't even talked about DAOs. Um, uh, um, we haven't talked about, again, in detail, um, NFTs, but this idea of doing things differently um, uh, is always good. It's always a positive. Uh, and, and there's a lot of community building that has gone around Web3. Um, and, and even the whole idea of DAOs, there are communities that are growing around it. Uh, and I think that that's just the start of breaking the mold and thinking differently. So I think that's another positive um, aspect of Web3. One thing I, I, I've had a few conversations and I, I wish I heard more. Maybe I'm just not tuned into the right communities. But it's something, Hillary, you mentioned earlier, is that there is some value in having centralized institutions, whether it's consistencies of rules, whether it's having a singular place to go. And I feel like I haven't heard enough conversations in the Web3 about, like, what do we lose when we move away from these centralized authorities? Like, yes, there's definitely problems. We could do a whole series of episodes about the problems of centralized authorities, but there's safety built in, there's trust built in, there's consistency of the rules built in. 
if there's an issue, there's an accountability structure built in. And it seems like a lot of those things may, maybe not, I'm not a, a Web3 expert, that's what I'm here for. So how are those things kind of lost in the shift to Web3? Maybe how are how does Web3 replace those things? And how do we deal with rebuilding these kinds of institutions in a Web3 context? Yeah, I think it's still a valid question to ask. Uh, I will say that I think that at the technical level of conversations, uh, you can still have those safety features built in. Um, Will you be talking about what arbitrage off-chain looks like (laughs) in in your kind of daily personal conversations? Probably not. Uh, But those instances do exist and they are Uh, built into a lot of the platforms that are being built today. Uh, There's also interoperability that's being built between blockchains. So it's not just one blockchain over here and one over here. Uh, It's it's becoming easier to work between chains as well as uh, kind of making it so that if there is an issue, there is a person to talk to. So I think there is a little bit of a misconception when it comes to, you know, what are we losing? Uh, because centralization and decentralization is a scale. There is really no total decentralized uh, or even distributed system. That is incredibly theoretical, and it's we're not going to reach a point where everything is perfectly. Uh, decentralized or distributed. It's going to be something along that scale. So in in most of my circles, the reason why people are pushing for the decentralization of these bigger systems is uh, due to the security uh, and the relative ability of it to stay secure. So what I mean by that is with, uh, say, a big named internet company that we all use, I will not name, but you can kind of deduce, if their servers go down, what, you know, who are you going to call? What What's going to happen to your data, uh, right? And if you were to decentralize, take apart uh, the data that does exist on those servers called sharding, uh, that can help build in some security to your data so that if one server goes down, it's not the end of the world uh, for you and your data. So that's a little bit of a high level of of why there's such a push to decentralize. Uh, But with that, there will obviously be uh, a lot of uh, kind of roadblocks to get to that point. But that's all with technology and and building within this, this new area is about is kind of experimenting and finding out better better ways to, to help secure people's data and have people interact with, a, I would say, more autonomy and more sovereignty. <laughs> that is an excellent answer. Could not have been said better. Thank you so much. So I think I have... Hillary, did you have something to add or next? Okay. Um, I have two more questions. I think one is 
I, I, I want to get a better understanding of like who should be tuned into these conversations, who can benefit most from a user perspective. One conversation I've seen a lot and kind of tried to tune in is how Web3 will improve the creator economy. I think we've been seeing a lot of these platforms. There's stuff about Netflix pay structure. Twitch just changed their monetization rules. YouTube does. I'm calling out a lot of people on this podcast right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> YouTube does that often. And I think creators want to have a space where they can um, circulate content but not feel as controlled and not even to get into the pros and cons of that and what people will be saying. But I think people want to feel like they're able to take more power back. So I know that the creator community, not generally, but a lot of voices are very excited about the idea of having a platform where they can create and circulate and reach their fans in a different way outside of the purview of the large platforms that kind of the handful of large platforms that control all these conversations, but are there other communities that you think have maybe unique problems that should be tuned into the Web3 conversation that they may be able to solve through decentralization? Yeah, I so I'm gonna go back to one of the research topics that I've been working on for a while, but the, the need for us in the US uh, specifically to have a, decentralized self-sovereign identity system. Uh, our identity systems currently are, aren't as secure as they could be. And if we are to kind of move forward in uh, how kind of intense the cybersecurity risks for our, our space is becoming and uh, the movement of individuals, I think investing in infrastructure that can help build self-sovereign identity systems would uh, be a great use case, uh, a very practical use case that uh, focuses on building up the infrastructure of our, you know, very, very personal systems um, and, and building it out privately uh, in a way that protects users' data uh, while also uh, creating a potential fallback in case, you know, you lose your ID or, or you lose your birth certificate. Um, so that's kind of the example that I always go to, but I'm sure that Hillary has tons of other more fun, <laughs> less technical use cases. <laughs> um, at the, at the end of the day, when you say, um, what, you know, what, what communities should tune in or what communities should benefit. I mean, the hope, I think the hope is that um, lots of communities that aren't necessarily benefiting from Web 2.0 will, right? Like the hope of a disruptive technology or a new revolutionary technology or an evolutionary technology. And again, I'm using general terms because there's so many different parts of Web 3 that I could answer there, right? And you, you I mean, you touched on the creator community. I think that's an obvious um, community because you are now using blockchain to um, uh, create an asset in the digital economy, which wasn't created able to do before. Um, for example, you couldn't really resell a song without violating copyright laws. So everything was licensed, right? Now you might be able to have a chain showing who has ownership and create a whole new system of you know ownership. So I think it's so clear. But what I'm hoping is that um, different communities can, you know, get access to needs more easily, like we were talking about before, whether it is 
uh, a way to transfer um, money and have less fees and less middleman, whether it's a way to transfer assets and get rid of uh, fees and pain points um, in international you know, transfers. Obviously, there's always a dark side to that as well. I think one of the things we need to be tuned in, frankly, is how Web3 might hurt communities that aren't paying attention to this um, this evolution of the internet. And I think the problems that we had um, and we're dealing with right now with um, design of algorithms, for example, and bias, or just general um, technology and bias, uh, the same thing is going to happen in Web3 when you think of who is actually using Web3 and the demographics of it. First of all, like I'm aged out, like I'm woefully aged out of like Web3. I'm, I'm involved in it, but I'm like a unicorn, right? Of like my age group dealing with the act. I wanna do the technology. I wanna, you know, get in there and do it. Um, so I, I, I don't know, Gabrielle, maybe you would know better, but I swear I'm thinking the average age for Web3 is like 20 to 25. Like I'm thinking that's like your key demographic, but, but generally it's gonna be between 15 and 30. And I, I, I'm not the first to do this. I mean, there are studies of who is like using these new technologies more. And when you think of what's the, then when you break into more demographics of what those communities look like, those are the people that are making these products, designing these products, um, creating the products, who's investing money into the e-commerce of Web3. Um, and what does that look like? And how is that going to potentially hurt certain communities, create certain barriers, um, create new biases. We have to, we know better now. Like we know that this is all over um, policy circles of how do we deal with um, mistakes in the past of design of technology, hardware or software without thinking of its effects on all sorts of people. So I'm hoping moving forward that the people that are designing these um, new uses or these new technologies are thinking beyond just, hey, this is a great idea. Um, our great idea for my limited community. Um, let's let, let's think of how it will affect everybody else. Agreed. The classic Jurassic Park, we can't, doesn't mean we should problem that every month I read a technology that I was like, why did you decide to do that? You should have done that. But anyway, one last question. As a lawyer who deals with problems all day, I like to always try to finish conversations on a light note. Um, you may have mentioned this in the conversation, but just to reiterate, what is something about Web3, the decentralized web, that you're hopeful for? Come on, I know y'all have some hope. <laughs> Don't. I thought I thought the lawyer was supposed to, <laughs> to go first. Okay. I'm not the lawyer. <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't know if I, Gabrielle was going to speak first, and I didn't want to interrupt. I was being so... Um, Wow, I, I, there's, gosh, there's so many things. I mean, I truly am hopeful that there will be new uses um, with uh, Web3 technologies that I haven't even thought of that is going to make my life better in a, and everyone else's in a positive way. I know that's as vague as possible, but I look to the potential of these technologies, not how they're just being used today. I think there is such positive potential in any type of creator that is looking at things differently. So I, I, again, cautious optimism. That is how I see it. I'm cautiously optimistic that, for example, we're gonna learn through the Bored Ape NFT experience that, wow, NFTs can be really useful in such and such way that I, I, I'm not envisioning right now, but in the future, it's gonna be beyond um, trading cards and um, uh, just necessarily, um, uh, you know, bored apes or kitties, right? So I 
think we never thought of some of the uses of technology that we use them now. Like, I just think of NASA and all the different things that were created for space and we use them like in our toothpaste, right? Like there's just all these things we don't realize can affect positively um, our future. So I am hoping that um, when we look at this 20 years from now, we'll think it's such a cute conversation and there'll be all these amazing things that we've learned and grown from using blockchain and using Web3 technologies. And I am hoping that there, with this new iteration, that there is a renewed uh, interest in closing the digital divide, because that is, as we've said before, one of the biggest barriers to getting all communities involved with uh, emerging technologies, whether we're talking about Web3, whether we're talking about augmented reality in the metaverse, uh, there needs to be a significant push for uh, investing in the development and infrastructure for uh, broadband for everyone. So I am hoping at the very least that that is closed and that we get uh, more people onboarded uh, onto the internet and get comfortable with using the internet so that uh, we can have better, safer communities online. Uh, And in addition to that, I am very, uh, hopeful that peer-to-peer technologies and the use of privacy-preserving technologies will also uh, continue to gain interest and gain uh, widespread use as we continue this kind of journey into uh, the Web3 ecosystem. Amazing. Love finishing a conversation with Hope. Thank you so much, Gabrielle and Hillary, for making the time to have this discussion. It was great, extremely informative. I know that our listeners will really enjoy it. This episode has been brought in partnership with the Decentralized Future Council. So everyone listening, you should follow the Internet Law and Policy Foundry and the Decentralized Future Council on our socials to keep up with the latest and greatest in these conversations and subscribe to the Tech Policy Grind podcast to be notified when new episodes are released. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed and we'll catch you next time. Huge thank you to Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, and Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, for all their help in making this episode happen.